So I got to host some of these guys, some of the third through fifth graders at my house on Friday. Um, Christy Wilson kind of coordinated this, uh, the second cohort to come over uh, to kind of meet the pastor, kind of dinner thing. And the kids got to ask Corey and I questions about our lives. So things like, uh, when did you know you wanted to become a pastor? And um, when did you become a follower of Jesus? And uh, one, someone even asked, uh, when did you have your first crush? And who, what was her name? And that was Bella Hansen. Thank you so much. Um, and then somebody asked, uh, what kind of kid were you? And I'm like, well, what do you mean by what kind of kid? And they're like, well, well, like, what were you like? And I, I said, well, what do you think I was like? And they were like, you're trouble. Um, they wanted to know, like, what kind of things I did as a kid. I thought it's a great question. Like, what did you like to play? What kinds of things did you do when you were nine and ten years old? And um, when I think about it, my, my friends and I, probably like a lot of you, um, we did some dangerous things. Like, not illegal or bad things, but just, like, when I think of my kids doing the same things I did, it kind of freaks me out. Like we made this zip line one time across a, a, like a, a 40, 40 foot long by over a 25 foot dip in this drainage ditch. And we just like, it, until my dad found it and made us take it down. But just stuff like that, where we would climb trees till you get up to the top and they're swaying. is like, I don't know how tall, 60, 70 feet tall, right? Like we just did stuff like that. And one of the games that the kids loved this story was, I said, yeah, we would play Jedi Knight. And I, well, what's Jedi Knight? And well, we get these alder sticks. We had a lot of alder trees by my house and we'd make lightsabers. And then the other kids would throw rocks and pine cones and we would have to deflect them, right? And obviously you get good or you get bruised, but I mean, it's one of, those, one of those two things. And it struck me how so many things in life that we consider to be good are also quite dangerous if you look a, a little more closely. Like, like we're all enjoying the sunshine and it's fantastic. It makes things grow, makes us feel good, gives us a tan or whatever. But like, it's a nuclear reactor, basically. Like, it's pretty dangerous. It's, uh, you know, at its coolest area, 7,300 degrees, and it's tens of millions of degrees in its hottest places. I mean, this is like a dangerous thing if you get too close. Or, or take a car, you know, it can be a handy tool if you have to carry lots of people or go a long distance. Uh, Samara, my six-year-old, is into helping dad get gas these days. So she likes to get out and like pump the gas and push the buttons and swipe the card and all that. Um, so we get in the car and pull away. She says, dad, when we put gas on the side of the car, like where, where does it go? And I'm well, it's in a tank. It's actually under your seat right now. And she says, well, I thought you said gas is like really dangerous. Like, you know, it can explode. I'm like, oh yeah, but the explosion happens under the hood. It's in front of us actually. Like, oh, there's, there's six little cylinders in there and then it explodes. And then I'm like thinking through like, yeah, that's kind of dangerous, right? Like it, she says, well, couldn't we just blow up? Every, to every good thing, um, well, the most good things, I haven't thought about everything in the world, but most good things, there, there's, a, there's a positive and there's a dangerous side to it. Uh, and that goes with the spiritual life as well. Take God's deliverance of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. When you come out of an oppressive situation like slavery, uh, like the Israelites did, it, it messes with you, right? You, you know you want freedom. You've wanted it your whole life. And, and in this example, they wanted it for generations. But they've been formed and shaped by dependence on the very people who were oppressing them. Freedom sounds good, but one has to learn how to be free. I know that sounds funny, but if you think it through, it's true. One has to learn how to be free if you've been uh, captive or you've been oppressed. One has to unlearn dependence on one master and learn how to trust a new one. And in this case, they had to learn how to trust Yahweh. Near the end of their training in the desert wanderings, Yahweh was about to bring them into their salvation, into the, the promised land. 
But with this good situation came a very real potential danger. And because God wants people to thrive, Yahweh warns the people of these potential dangers that they could encounter when they enter the promised land. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 10. So if you're able, stand with me and I'll read that to us. Again, Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 10. And this is Yahweh writing through Moses, his, his prophet. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live on bread alone, but people live by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, nor did your foot swell in all of these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This is a, a lot of hyperbole going on describing how great this land is. Um, literally like iron and copper just laying on the ground or falling out of the hills. He doesn't even talk about rainfall in this arid area. He talks about water that comes up out of the ground. He talks about crops, the kind of crops that, that make beer and that make wine, and that make bread, and that are abundantly good. And God is about to take this band of ex-slaves, this tiny nation of wilderness wanderers, and bring them into this land that is full of goodness, and not just full of good things, but an abundance, an overflowing of good things. He's bringing them into a situation of wealth and potential greatness that has never been seen in Scripture since the Garden of Eden. But if the people merely take the gift, the good things, but don't continue to depend on Yahweh, the giver of the good things, they will quickly lose their way. And that's what God is warning them about. Whenever the people of God, and this is looking at scripture here, this is not just like some idea I pulled out, but whenever the people of God forget who their good life comes from, and whenever they stop being faithful, they always turn towards idolatry, which leads to death. I mean, it happens in like almost all the books of the Bible. It's ridiculous. And the same is true for us, which is why I think Deuteronomy 8 can be such a relevant text even to 21st century Bellingham. 
So let's see how God instructs these ancient Israelites, and I'll help connect the dots uh, to our lives today as followers of Jesus. So first we see God's good intention with his people. He takes them out of slavery. That's a very good thing. He provides for all of their needs. He provides food to eat and clothes that don't wear out. He provides his presence because they're freaked out. They're walking into the desert. So he's got the pillar of of cloud by day and fire by night. He is with them. They've got food. They've got water that comes out of rocks. And they've got clothes and shoes that don't seem to wear out. It's amazing. And then he provides the law. He gives them a law code, an ethic, a way of being a community together that far out exceeds even Hammurabi's code and and many of the other ancient Near Eastern law codes. It's his graciousness, it's his ethics, and it's an ability for them, if they were to follow it, that would lead them to shalom, to true lasting peace as a community. Now, whatever God is about to say, whatever his warnings in the rest of this passage, we know it is for his people and it is good for them. So he sets out this vision for the good life uh, that he's going to provide them. And then what does he do? He doesn't give them a whole like a to-do list or anything like that. What he tells them to do is to remember. Remember. Remember all the ways that the Lord your God has already led you in the wilderness these days. Rather than citing like general platitudes or like, hey, I'll be good to you if you do this, or don't worry, I'm bringing you into the promised land, it's going to be okay. He has them remember things that he's already done within a generation Like some of these people he's talking to were little kids when God was bringing their parents through the wilderness. They probably were raised on the stories in in Tabernacle or around the campfire, around the dinner table of, I was alive, son, when I walked through the Red Sea. You should have seen it. You know, like telling these firsthand stories within a generation. He's asking them to remember the good things that God has already done for them. And the first thing that he asks them to remember is the way he intentionally led them out into the desert to be tested. Had God wanted to take the Israelites like straight to the promised land, he could have done it in like a few weeks. Like you come out of Egypt, you draw a straight line to the promised land, even with aged people with them and and, and small children, you could make it in several weeks to the promised land. But he he spends 40 years in the desert, almost like like a boot camp with them. It's a common occurrence that you hear of someone who is maybe relatively poor, winning the lottery, or a professional athlete who goes from like rags to riches because they sign a contract for millions of dollars, or some suburban kid who uh, is smart with computers and all of a sudden he's making millions in dot-com stuff and then sells it, right, for a billion dollars. And these stories almost never turn out really well because people get a lot of material possessions, a lot of power, a lot of money, and don't necessarily have the character or the mentoring to do well with it. And Yahweh knows this about people. So rather than taking these newly freed slaves from rags to riches, he brings them into the wilderness where they can learn who God is, and just as importantly, they can get uh, an honest self-assessment of who they are. In the wilderness, all the comforts of wealth and social system are stripped away In the wilderness, it doesn't matter so much what jobs you had back in Egypt or what family name you come from or what kind of house you lived in back in Egypt. It doesn't matter because in the wilderness, everybody's in a tent. 
everybody's pretty hungry, everybody's pretty thirsty, everyone's disoriented, like what on earth is going on? Everyone was on equal, humble ground. And our passage makes a point to say that God brought the people out to the wilderness to test them. That that might sound odd because tests as exercises, like we often think of a, of a test like in school. I automatically think of school and I think of a test is there to, I'm probably getting in trouble with all the teachers and all oh, those not what tests are. I always just thought they were like tests to, to evaluate, right? Like what a student has learned, how much they've improved from September to December. Uh, and, and sometimes the state gives us tests that we have to show that our students are learning a certain amount. So the test It's to show what they've learned, what they're thinking and feeling. Um, And that would imply that God doesn't know already what people are thinking and what their hearts are feeling, right? But, But that interpretation just doesn't like match with the rest of the Bible. In most other passages, God clearly at least knows the intentions of people and he knows their hearts and he knows their thoughts. But once we take a look at the Hebrew language and a little bit about the cultural context, we, we see that the issue is pretty easily resolved because the language used here for testing comes from the world of metallurgy, like where, where somebody finds a piece of ore in a rock and it's all gross and raw and the master technician knows what's in there. He already knows and it puts it in the heat to test it and then all of the, the junk, the dross kind of moves away and you're, you end up with this pure thing of what it really is on the inside. So the testing wasn't to show God something that he didn't already know, but to reveal the true hearts and the true minds of the people themselves for themselves. As one author puts it, God's tests prove our faith and can improve our faith. God's tests both prove our faith and improve our faith. Like, when we're tested, it's just who we really are. There's no other crutches to fall back on. In the wilderness, without comforts of home and the trappings of culture, that lifts, uh, you know, the, uh, where they came from in culture, like social systems, everyone's got a place, right? And, and, and our structures often lift some people up at the expense of other people and We all have our our place in the pecking order. But in the wilderness, like, it's not like that. There's nothing to fall back on. It's just you. And what emerges when it's just you is the true self. The self when things aren't going smoothly. The self when you're hangry. The self when you're scared and insecure. In the wilderness, the people learned that in reality, they were pretty faithless. They were dependent on worldly things and they had been used to living as though their real food and their real security came from their taskmasters in Egypt and that God was just this convenient thing to do on Saturdays for Sabbath and go through the motions. Now, think what would have happened if God had taken people like that and taken them directly to a land where they could have all the food that they wanted. A land where wine and beer ran in abundance, where the finest fruits grew and where there was plenty of clean water, like all right there for them. If they had gone into the wilderness with little faith, think of how hard it would be once you get into a land of plenty where it doesn't seem like you need much faith. It's a severe mercy then that God tested them in the wilderness. It was a grace that he showed them their deep need for him. 
But we know all about this, don't we? We live in a land of plenty. Compared to much of the world, we have access to clean water whenever we want, to food, to shelter, to entertainment, to freedom, to clothing. Most of us live lives where if we want, we could indulge in lots of different areas. And many of us have much more than we actually need. And while this can be a tremendous blessing because we can share it, because we don't have to worry, while it can be a tremendous gift, it can also give us a false sense of self-reliance, that I don't need anybody else, or that I don't need God. It's easier to feel self-made when you have plenty of income, savings, insurance, and a retirement plan. It's easier for us to insulate ourselves from God and the rest of the world when your question isn't, what can I afford to eat tonight, but it's always, what do I want to eat tonight? Again, having enough or more than enough isn't a bad thing. The danger is when we lose sight of the fact that all good things are always gifts from God. In Deuteronomy 8, God was about to bring the people into this land of plenty. He was reminding them of who they really were, His people dependent on Him. But we're in a land of plenty, so it's not like we're in the wilderness now waiting to go in and this is some lessons. So when you get to Bellingham in the 21st century, it's going to be pretty slick. Uh, so be careful. No, we're already there. So how can we grow more dependent on God? How can we grow in faithfulness and thankfulness to appreciate all of these good things? How do we keep from imprisoning God uh, to this religious box that's reserved for Sundays? Good job, you're all here. And, and maybe a Bible study midweek and maybe some volunteer stuff. Like, how do we keep from just, okay, God, your spot in my life is in these areas. Then everything else is basically, whoo, I did it, I earned it, I'm going to spend it however I want, right? I'm going to feed myself. Last week, we talked about the importance of intimacy and practicing silence and solitude. It's a way on the one hand to trust God that if we stop in the middle of the day or in the morning or in the evening, if we, if we stop and slow down and stop producing and running ourselves ragged with constant activity, guess what? God will keep the world spinning and your heart will keep beating until well, it doesn't anymore things will be okay because God is still God when we're not running like crazy. And on the other hand, we've, we learned that we benefit from silence and solitude because in that space of quiet, we can actually confront some of the anxieties uh, of our hearts and allow God to speak into them in the stillness when we can actually sit with Him long enough to hear Him point some things out gently and to invite Him in like, Lord, deal with that. Because one of the easiest ways to escape our anxieties and our fears and our sins is just to keep busy, to never slow down. So we talked about that last week. But another tried and true way of testing our faith and trusting in God is through fasting. A traditional fast in the Christian tradition involves some form of abstaining from food for a designated period of time. The mechanism varies widely. Like some people choose to skip certain meals, like maybe uh, you're going to skip lunch for a week. Every lunch, you're just going to go through it and, and skip that meal. Um, 
Others go without food for a day. For example, like you might eat breakfast on Monday, and then you refrain from eating until breakfast on Tuesday. So you do this 24-hour fast from breakfast to breakfast. That's where that word breakfast comes from, breaking fast. Anyway, fun. Um, some people do two-day fasts or three-day fasts or 40-day fasts. Some people allow juice or a sip of coffee on their fast day, and other people are just water-only people. There's all kinds of different fasts. I'm not here to actually preach about fasting. In fact, that's one of the cool things about the devotional material that we uh, have emailed out and the small groups are going through, is that that is more, it will help hold your hand through trying a, maybe a day-long fast this week or something like that. I, I, I'm going to stick to trying to preach this text um, rather than mechanisms of fasting. But I, I do want to point out that there are lots of different reasons that people fast. You know, in the scriptures, we see fasting as a symbol of, uh, of lament or sorrow. Uh, when, a, when a tragedy happens in a, in a local community, people fast as in sorrow for that. They fast as a way maybe of focusing on prayer or seeking to be attentive to God when needing to make a big decision. Maybe as a family, as an individual, or as a church community. That's another way fasting is used. Last week I said, you have to understand that we are incredibly good at protecting the status quo of who we are. Our bodies, our appetites, our thoughts, our routines, they're all on the same team trying to keep us where we're at. They're not good, they're not bad, they're just the stuff we're made of. But we like stasis. But when we come before Jesus in silence and solitude, he's going to speak to us. And he's going to speak transformative words. And he's going to require change. And fasting is yet another way of forming our appetites, of harnessing our impulses, it takes control back from our appetite so that I'm not just a stomach with a will, that I'm a will, that I'm a person who has a stomach, you know? My stomach is supposed to digest food so that my body works. I'm not supposed to work for my stomach. Fundamentally, fasting is about trusting God. Just as in silence and solitude it, it is a way of trusting God with my time, so fasting is a way of trusting God with my life. This leads us to the second thing that God asked the Israelites to remember in Deuteronomy 8. He writes, I humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that people do not live on bread alone, but they live on everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, there's two parts to this memory. First, God provided for their physical needs. Yes, he took them to a place in the wilderness where there weren't any grocery stores or restaurants or gardens. All of the trappings of comfort were gone, but he did provide for them supernaturally. He provided manna, this weird substance that appeared on the ground each day, just enough for the day. And, you know, he warned them not to try and hoard it. Some people tried to hoard it, you know, like we do. Um, any of you, small children, when you feed them, like 18-month-olds, two-year-olds, you put the food on the plate... And before they're done, they want more. At least my kid. They always thought I was like going to starve them to death. Like they want to put a little pile here in case there's not enough or something. Well, but grown-ups do that too. And in the, in the wilderness, people would hide this manna in the corner of their house. And God would say, don't do that. It's going to rot. It, it, overnight, it would rot and grow like he, maggots and stuff. It's so gross. He, he's trying to teach them that I will give you what you need. Just trust me. You don't have to hoard up. 
It was meant to sustain them, but also to keep them with their eyes focused on him. Like, I need you, Lord. You're the, you're the provider of this good thing. And this is an all-important detail. God is not anti-body. He's not anti-physical. Sometimes the discipline of fasting has come across as body abuse for the sake of like cleansing the soul because the soul is more important than the body. Uh, that is maybe true in some religious traditions, but that is not true in Judaism and Christianity. God made us embodied creatures on purpose. We are substantial. We have a soma, a body. God said it was very good. Deuteronomy 8 is a reminder that God provides for all, people's, uh, for all of the people's physical needs in the wilderness. He's not diminishing the importance of the body. He is stripping away the excess so that we understand that the body is not all important. Which leads us to the second part of what he wants them to remember. The second part is that God was teaching them that they needed more than food anyway. They needed the word of God now remember, they didn't have the scriptures back then. He's not just talking about, here's a Bible and some manna, you're good. He's not just talking about the scriptures. He's talking about him, his presence, God himself, the living word. As long as our bellies are filled, our cups are overflowing, our needs are more than met, it is very easy to think that we have all we need to truly live. God becomes an extra, an accessory, and add, an addition to our lives. At least that's the lie that affluence wants us to believe. But when we fast, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're used to rich foods or a, a diet of grains and veggies, we're all in the same humble position when we fast. Most of us aren't used to going without food for more than a meal, let alone for a day, let alone for as long as you do. By participating in a planned fast, a few things begin to happen. First, we're more aware of what we're doing, right? We reach for a snack at about 10 a.m. It's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm fasting today. This is weird. Why am I doing this? Oh, yeah, it's to draw closer to God. And then we can turn that into a prayer. Lord, have mercy. Lord, help me to see you today. A few hours in, we begin to feel our stomachs rumble. If we're attentive, we can feel a kind of solidarity with, uh, with many men, women, and children whose stomachs are in a perpetual state of dissatisfaction and grumbling and malnutrition. During a fast, some people contribute the money they would have spent on the meal that they're skipping and contribute it to, uh, to a charity, that, particularly ones that, that feed people, the food bank or World Vision or many other places that get food to hungry people. As the day goes on, we come to a point where it gets a little more difficult. You may get hangry. Watch out. Around a faster. Your filter is lower, and the true self begins to emerge, feeling and revealing this ugliness of sin. And we can use this opportunity to just, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't know why this is in me. I don't know, I don't like this part of me. Would you forgive me? You know, sometimes a fast can bring us to ask forgiveness and we can confess things that we pretty much can keep pushed down through the comforts of life. But most importantly, we come to have clarity. My favorite thing about fasting 
is that it, it gives me more of a laser focus in my day. I feel dependent on Jesus, focused on him for help. My usual pick-me-ups are stripped away, a sugary coffee drink in the afternoon, a little piece of chocolate, a snack, all of those distractions that I use to plug the holes in my character and to make me feel better, they're gone. And what does that leave me with? A hangry brat that needs the Lord really badly. And I come to find that as nice as those things are that I turn to when I'm not fasting, what is truly essential, whether I'm fasting or not, is abiding in Jesus. Fasting helps us to get in touch with our longing. And once I've taken away the variable that food might solve my problem, I turn to Jesus only to realize that he's my sweetest gift. He is and always has been my truest food, like what I actually need to to study better or to meet with someone from the church and be more present. And finally, it comes time to eat. And whether it's a 24-hour fast or something longer, the prayer of thanks for the meal that you first eat after even a, a short fast is more genuine, I think. The food, the drink tastes better. The feeling of thanksgiving, more genuine, more real, more like, I'm really thankful for this. This really tastes good. You'll even compliment the chef a little bit nicer if, you, if someone's cooking for you. People can't live long without physical food, but neither, the scriptures tell us, can we live on just food for very long. In John 6, Jesus stands before a group of people who are looking to him to perform miracles involving food. They know he can make bread out of nothing, and they want to be around this golden goose who can fill their bellies for the rest of their lives. But Jesus challenges them to desire more. And he reveals himself as the bread of life, the giver, the gift of life, eternal life, life with the living God. And maybe it's ironic that when we feel empty as people, emptying our stomachs with the fast can actually help us turn to the one that fills us as people. But if it helps us get in touch with the bread of life, then I say it's worth it. And so this week, as we look at the less is more devotional material, I hope that this encourages you, gives you more of a a why is fasting important? Why could it be a tool that we can employ? Not because it makes you more holy or because if you do A, God will do B. That is exactly the wrong reason to fast. It is because we have a good and gracious God. It's because we have a God who self-reveals as the bread of life, who gave himself for us, who, who... who his whole purpose is to give us life. And sometimes we don't feel the need when we have all of our other needs met. And so this is an avenue that we can approach him in dependence. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, bread of life, bless you. Bless you for being the one who provides for all our needs. Forgive us for the ways that we have taken the physical gifts you've given us and turned them into the main point. Help us learn, Lord, to be people who can enjoy good gifts while also knowing where they came from and appreciating you 
depending on you. Help us to grow in our hunger for you and your spirit, for your way, for your character to be made new and alive in us. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to me and to each one of us the things in our lives that are are blocking our vision of you, that are actually numbing our hunger for you. And help us to have wisdom and courage to experiment with cutting those things out of our lives for the sake of something much better, the bread of life.